Good evening, ladies and Hello. gentlemen. Hello. Yeah, I made it in. I don't well know done. what happened there. It was very was, frustrating. I could hear strange. you. I could hear you and I couldn't speak to you, which is the worst of both worlds. Absolutely. Um, no one wants you, to hear me. No. Um, I, I did miss lots of your tennis spiel, George. Do I take it you've been playing tennis all day? I, that, yes, well, we'll do. I worked till four and then I've played two hours, five to seven, and an hour, eight to nine. So I've, I've well, transitioned whole, from heart to clay. You've done, whole, you've done a whole day's work, which is a rarity in itself. So. Yeah, it um, seems unlikely. Yeah, well, welcome back, everyone who has spent a long, cold winter of lockdown without any tennis. Uh, hopefully, you've pretty much not even had to work like George and being able to play from, from dawn till dusk. Uh, that would be, uh, I know so many people have been looking forward to that, been so frustrated, not been allowed to. Um, so, yeah, happy, happy, happy tennismas, I suppose, is the best thing I can say. Uh, to all of you out there. Um, I'd also like to wish a warm welcome to our first guest this evening, um, because I can see that in the room is Dominic Hayes. Dominic's the director of uh, River Media, who are the company behind, as Calvin, I think, mentioned earlier, the UK Pro League. Um, we're two weeks into the 2021 edition. The third week kicks off on Easter Monday on the 5th of April. It's, of course, a, an eight-week series overall, and I hope that Dom's going to join us um, if George lets him in, because I know George is a bit of a fascist with the old speaking rights, as I've learned to my detriment this evening. Um, Dom's going to tell us a little bit more about the tournament and about his plans for it and, and kind of how it came about. Uh, Dom, I can see that you're in. Well, welcome to the show. I've just been admitted. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. I feel uh, privileged to be allowed in. Um, yeah, it, it took a while. It took a while. Got there in the end, though. Got there in the te- end. Technically. Oh, it happened for the best. We know the drill. Don, why, why don't you why don't you start by telling us a little bit about um, how the UK Pro League came about? Yeah, so I'll give you the the story uh, if you like, because I've told this to a few people, but um, it, it bears repeating because I think um, you know we we've been very lucky uh, myself and my colleagues to to have um, been welcomed so warmly, if you like, by the by the tennis community, um, and something we're very grateful for, but. Ultimately, um, myself and my two partners, uh, Ben Nicholas and Nick Chesworth, um, they came out of IMG at the same time that I exited Prem Rugby. Um, I'd been at Prem Rugby for eight years prior to prior to setting up uh, our own organisation. And Ben and Nick had both been at IMG for time immemorial and were well-established parts of the senior management team there. Um, but we all came out of our various entities at a, a, basically the beginning of February last year. And um, had sort of decided that we'd set up together and do something together, and it was all very exciting. Of course, then we were hit smack bang by a global mm. pandemic, which is potentially not the best time to be setting up something new. But you know, we um, we embraced it as as we were, you know, forced to do to some extent, like everybody else. Um, mm. And you know, we signed a few clients, and we were doing some good stuff. But Ben had been very involved uh, at IMG Arena. Um, on the watch and bet side of, of the IMG business when they'd set up. So it's quite well versed in the fact that tennis particularly was a big betting sport. Um, and some of his friends there had basically said, look, there's a huge dearth in content available at this point in time for the betting uh, markets. Um, and at the same time, Ben had also read an article um, at the beginning of May last year about the plight of the tennis player. Um, mm. And the fact that it is, you know, it's difficult. A, out, if you're outside the world's top 250, it's very difficult to earn a living. 
and B, um, in, in, a, in a time of a global pandemic, it's actually impossible to earn a living. And it's, in some instances, it's impossible to train, let alone compete. Um, so these sort of two things coming together, um, we talk to each other about the potential of setting up a, some form of tennis tournament for the British professional, which would it kind of tick two boxes, really. One, it would enable the player group to train, play and get paid. And B, it would provide great content to the betting markets at a time when they didn't have anything. So we basically knew we could get it funded. Um, so we did a lot of work in a very short period of time to establish what was last season the UK Pro Series. And that was six weeks back to back, 42 consecutive days of tennis. Um, it was five individual qualifying weeks and then a final classic week. Um, and effectively, it was a league system whereby 12 men, 12 women come together, split into two pools of six, play each other in their pool once uh, from Monday to Friday, five games in five days. Uh, the top two players in each pool then go into semi-final and final for the first to fourth place playoffs. The third and fourth in each pool go into the five to eight playoffs and the five and six in each pool go into the nine to 12 playoffs. Um, they play in the playoffs, semi-finals and finals on Saturday and Sunday, and end the week with a ranking one to twelve. And those mm. rank that, that that ranking brings with it um, prize money, as well yeah. as then ranking points. So that was the system. Uh, we were also paying players participation fees as well, so they were getting paid to play, rather than all of the money be just on prize money. Mm. So um, that was that. That was the system. It worked really well. Players loved it, I think. A, they enjoyed the opportunity to play a lot of matches because, aside from not being able to compete during the pandemic, you know, it's also quite tricky, isn't it, as a player to get, get much match play in because you're, you know, if, you, if you're travelling the world, getting knocked out in first or second round, you've got another week or so to, to sort of mull over your loss before you get the opportunity to right the wrongs. Whereas what we've, we've discussed here, it. We've discussed yes. it with Calvin before where, if, if you're not a very good player, it's quite hard to get into form because if you lose, you have another week until you can play again. It, yeah, precisely, it precisely. So, so that's what. So they really love that idea, basically being able to get back on the horse, um, which is you know. So this ticks up, but also they love they love being paid to do what they do, right? Rather than traveling to <laughs> yeah. traveling to Vietnam to lose a couple of grand, which is effectively mm. what you do. You know, you, you, they've got the opportunity to um, you know earn money to play in Surrey, which is what mm. we were offering. So, yeah. um, so it worked really well uh, in the year, and, and we ended up the week. We had um, of the players fit and available. We had fifteen of the top twenty men, British men, and thirteen of the top twenty British women. Um, so a really good you know, player group, and um, it felt that you know we were onto something. And, and the thing that I think we'd been surprised by, and it's you know because we, we, I again, unashamedly I've not I don't know a huge amount about tennis prior to sort of pro league starting or pro series starting last year, but I've thrown myself into it, obviously. But, um, you know, I, I hadn't really anticipated the quality. Mm. Um, and, and what I was really, really pleasantly surprised about was quite you know, how good the, the standard was, you know, and, and then how competitive it was as well. So, mm. you know, one of the, the keys to great sport, the, what, what makes people watch sport? Well, aside from big star names, which, you know, we know that makes sport great, but the things that people love to watch are, high quality, very competitive encounters. Um, And it's pretty apparent to us that within the framework of the British player group, there's a lot of very, very good players. They just don't have a profile at this point in time. Um, 
And so, anyway, coming out of the Pro Series, um, we thought we're onto something here. And the LTA have been hugely supportive because they saw what it could do in terms of that participation or the, the, the ability to play and compete uh, and also get paid for the players. Um, and they, they were very supportive of us and have you know, really helped us establish you know, a calendar. We're now um, LTA graded, which means that um, the, the, we will contribute to the new ITF World Tennis number. Um, so, you know, just a mark of credibility, et cetera. And, and they were, you know, they've just been hugely supportive all the way through um, mm. as, as we then set about creating the UK Pro League. And that is really the difference is it's exactly what you'd expect it to be. It's a, it's a, a longer season league competition whereby you've got, um, we've got nine weeks in total spread across nine months of the year, starting in March, finishing in basically early December. Uh, eight of those are qualifiers where you're in a similar format to how I, what I outlined earlier. You're earning points to win through to that finals week mm. um, in the standalone week. And then the big day in the sun, uh, well, or the chilly, the, the chill uh, in the, <laughs> at the beginning, beginning of December, um, where, which will hopefully be a big marquee venue uh, in front of thousands of people um, to compete for that sort of big UK champion prize. Um, how tough? You kind of mentioned it there um, and, you know, the the dream, the kind of utopia of just having any fans at sport remains for all of us. Um, how tough have the logistics been of running uh, an event like this, you know, with, with a lot of people on site for the whole time? Um, you know, how tough has that been for you and, and the new skills that you've had to learn about and the rules you've had to learn about? Well, um, Calvin was with us last weekend. I mean, he'll he'll know that there are very few people on site compared to a normal tournament. Um, effectively, because of the way we structure the day, there are there are twelve matches in total each day, uh, yeah. run, run across two courts, and we we schedule it accordingly. And players have a not before time, you know, so they won't get there, you know, for, 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 until relatively soon before their match, and they're encouraged to not hang around. Only allowed to bring one person with them. Um, the tournament's office is, you know, it's not a huge team. We're doing it all very very sort of. Um, uh, with light, it's quite light to touch. That's probably the way to describe it. No fans, you know. So therefore, there's no 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 marshalling around of, of fans. So it's behind closed doors. So you know, so you reduce the number of people on site, uh, but at the same time, you know, you've got to run um, a very very tight ship from a COVID compliance perspective. So there's a, there's a huge amount of regulation uh, based on the level three, the government's level three return to elite competition guidance, which we then mm. operate in conjunction with the LTA based on their their criteria, etc. So we're in close contact with them. Um, the players have to jump through a lot of hoops in terms of their uh, testing, you know, and, yeah. and both pre-event, during event, and, you know, then you know, the, the, on an ongoing basis. And also any guests on site have to go through quite a significant amount of testing. Um, and then when on site, there's lots of social distancing, a lot of nagging people to <laughs> make sure they've got their masks on and keep well apart, you know, and, and policing of it. But it's everything you'd expect it to be. You know, we've, we've got to do it. We've got to keep the players and, and, and staff and, and entourages on site safe. Um, so it is, that is a lot of work. And it is, you know, it means that when we come to broadcast, as Calvin will have seen, you know, we've got the, 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 the presentation talent and the commentary talent all have to wear masks. Um, so while it's, you know, it's definitely not normal, um, yeah. but it is, it's, it's what we have to do. It's our obligation as a, um, an event organizer in a time of global pandemic to make sure. And you, and you sort of forget when, when you're on site, we are in the midst, you know, well, coming out of it, starting to come out of it today, but we've been in the midst of lockdown, you know. Yeah. Um, so 
it, it's 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 very very hard, and there is right rightfully a lot of uh, red tape and a lot of um, uh, regulation around what we have to do, and we are very very keen and um, diligent in our compliance. So yeah, you know, that's, so it is hard. It adds a huge layer of logistics, and and of course it does take away a revenue stream because there is no there is no crowd. But yeah, you know we've always we've never factored that in. Uh, we're, the ambition is come the end of the year we're in front of crowds, but you know we know that. We've got to cut our cloth accordingly, in, in based on what the latest um, gut, well regulation is. So mm. we've got no we've got no ball boys, got no line judges. You know, we we, we really do reduce it. But um, yeah. the players the players are calling their own lines, which has its moments. But by and large, I think oh, probably, I mean we're very yeah. pro players calling their own lines on this show. We think that at elite level, it should be the same. It would make for a lot more entertainment. And I actually, yeah. you know, funnily, I, I'm sort of semi joking, but. I do think that tournaments like this can can provide a bit of a lesson for. I mean, Calvin, you're you're in a, a good position because you work work with lots of players at this level and know them pretty well. I mean, a format like this that we discussed a little earlier that that provides a, a pretty big opportunity for a lot of these players, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the 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 money's obviously been a big thing because it's it's been a game changer for these guys. They're normally sort of rubbing every two pence they've got together to try and get somewhere. Whereas now they know if they, and, and, and previous to this sort of tournament, they could have a very successful few weeks and still not have no money at the end of it. Whereas yeah. what they know now with these guys is that if they play well, if they win, they're going to have some money to do what they want to do. But there's been other sort of things that other things that I've found really interesting, both in this last summer and now um, in the couple of weeks we've had so far, is play- and Don will have seen it as well, is players sort of playing themselves into form where you'd see them sort of, they'd lose like four matches in a row and you think, oh, geez, you know, this is it's a bit of a difficult watch. And then the week after that, because they've played themselves in the form, they're suddenly in the top four um, and, and going, for, going for the winner's spot. Yeah, that's been, it's been, that's been a joy to watch, actually. Last summer particularly, um, yeah. Emily Appleton is a prime example of it. You know, she... She, she lost a few games, matches early on, um, sort of later, you know, in, on basically on her match tiebreak. And having run away with the first set, she'd, you know, get to sort of to, it would be, you know, wading through treacle to get to that sort of winning position. Um, but come week five, you know, she had nailed it and clearly got ahead in the right space and was really able to deal with those moments. Um, one week five qualified automatically which is what we had last year and then beat Naomi Brody in the fifth and sixth playoff um so so you know you you sort of saw that her really kind of come into her own on that um there's there's also Dom I think as well there was last summer there was a couple of runs at like horrendous runs of people losing tie breaks wasn't there I think Julian yeah, yeah. Cash had one didn't yeah, he although and he then... hasn't necessarily fixed that our Julian at this point <laughs> yes yeah. but I think it wasn't the one week where he, he lost four in a row then won yes. three in a row or something yeah. like that yeah he um, felt like he'd got his head around it at that point yeah yeah and yeah. What, what you're saying about um that sort of participate the ability to to play a lot I mean Liam Brody is a good example of it because Liam yeah you know, we did we put a, pro, a promo video together at the end just to sort of wrap up what we'd done and in that video, Liam's in one of the interviews said, "Look, you know, I'm a, I'm a match player. The more I play, the better I get." And so, with us, he played 21 days with us last summer. Came out of that played a battle with the Brits. So he played a lot come the end of the summer. And lo and behold, had his best ever qualifying in the French Open, made it into the main draw. You know, so yeah. obviously, I'm not claiming that the UK Pro Series delivered Liam Brody a, a, a first round of Roland Garros, but you know, undoubtedly, based on the way Liam improves his tennis, it was. 
you know, in the heat of battle that he, he improved and, and they provided him with that opportunity. There's just yeah. one, just picking up on one other thing you, you mentioned, Calvin, about the, the ability to earn money and get yourself into position then, and then and earn points and you know, move yourself forward. Yeah. What I mentioned scheduling earlier, and we're working really closely with the LTA and have adjusted some of our dates for this summer and into the back end of the year to make sure that we, we gel with the, the 25K swings in the UK so that players have got a chance to compete in the Pro League, compete in 25Ks, and then again compete in the Pro League. So there's a combination there of earning points and earning cash in a six-week block. And that'll be our yeah. model going forward, is to make sure that we're sitting either side of a, a, a 25K swing in the UK to enable that. Um, and again, because we're, we're keen to make sure that we are not asking players to choose between playing with us and earning ranking points, but we yeah. provide them an, a best-of-both-worlds scenario. Yeah, okay. Dom, um, George here. Um, I've, I've just been cycling home and listening to all of this and I've found it fascinating. It's really nice sitting back and just listening to the podcast <laughs> for a change rather than, rather than being involved. I, I did have one final question for you um, before we kind of go. And it's kind of about the future of the Pro League and beyond the Pro League, I suppose, as well, and where this sort of format fits in tennis. I mean, would you, in the long run, like to see more, perhaps like league formats in you know the higher levels? You know, having a you know a top ten league, kind of travelling around the world a little bit, kind of guaranteeing the best players playing against each other. How do you see that kind of fitting in there, rather than just like going knockout tournament to knockout tournament? I listen. I mean, you know, I think there's <laughs> the ability to deliver leagues at the you know the top one hundred and fifty level. I think is probably bit of a challenge at this stage you know i think the um <laughs> the scene is relatively set there at this you know and, and I'm, I'm not you know, i wouldn't pretend that we'd have any um aspirations to 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 change that because that's not where where we are you know we our first and foremost focus has been what we can we do for the uk market uh for the uk player base that 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 is complementary to the sport so we've and i've used this expression countless times and i and i really mean it is we we've come to this elbows in is the phrase I've used. We, we, we want to be additive. We want to deliver something you know, that, that is, is positive for the sport, isn't eating anyone else's lunch, is entirely you know, incremental to, to, to everything that's going on. And it feels like this is doing that because, you know, obviously, you know, we're not going to get the Dan Evans and Joe Contest competing with us week in, week out. And that's understood. And that's what wild cards for the, for the finals week are for. But, you know, under that sort of the rank of five to 25 is how we tend to characterize it. Those are the guys who potentially aren't making those those main draws at, you know, major events. It, it gives them a place to play and a format and a forum to be recognized. You know, our, the deal with BT Sport, the idea there is if, if you're, you know, if you let's, let's take an example. Um, I don't know. Uh, Anton Matusevich, you know, great player, real character, you know, Bit of a wunderkind, you'd have to think, and has got a great, great potential. Um, and it's certainly entertaining to watch, no doubt about that. You know, if, if Anton was a 19-year-old pro professional footballer, you know, he would, he'd be, every, everyone would know his name, right? Uh, based on the level he's playing and, you know, his, his whole profile. But, of course, because of, he's in tennis, he doesn't necessarily have that. So because everything he does... Where everything he competes in is, is is on a global stage, and ultimately, uh, what we're trying to say is that there's an opportunity to create a domestic forum here and a way for people to understand this British player base in a domestic setting. 
like I've got this kind of bugbear or this, this, this sort of way I characterize it because um, Tim Hemmen is, is your your ultimate example. If you step outside of tennis and ask the general sporting public about Tim, you know they they it's oh he nearly won Wimbledon didn't he almost made the final it's, you know there's no real acknowledgement of Tim's quality and what was you know he was world top ten for eight years seventeen or so ATP tour titles. You know, um, you know, a, a stellar career, a stellar, stellar career. Um, and, it, you know, uh, instead, the, the British sporting public tend not to revere him in maybe the way they could, would, should. Whereas, you know, it, it, then the example that we've sort of come up with in our heads is, you know, Man City have never won the Champions League, but still they're perceived as being a great side. So how do we sort of bridge that? What is the difference? Well, the key difference is that everything Tim Henman achieved he, he did in the context of the world game, uh, whereas Man City are judged, as are every Premier League football team, are judged by what they do in a domestic setting. And anything they do in a global, in a global forum is, is gravy. So while we're not, you know, it's, it's never going to be that size or scale, let's at least create some form of domestic forum and domestic championship so that the Anton Matusevichs of this world and the Emily Appletons and the uh, we've, got, we've got Katie Dunn's and, and you know, they're, they're these guys who aren't necessarily getting all the plaudits because they're winning their way into the semi-finals or finals or Grand Slams. Let's give them a, a, a place to shine and to start to become recognised by the British sporting public. And that why, is why you know, we've been so keen to work with BT to get a, a, a national television platform so you can watch you know, every, all day, every day on BT Sport Extra and then the weekends on BT Sport 3. You know, there's, so we're really keen to build that over time so that this presence and this acknowledgement and this understanding of the profile quality um, and, and, you know, interest levels within this player group is something that we can develop. So, you know, we want to create a, a future set of stars and hopefully, you know, we're starting to do that because the tennis well, can speak for itself in some instances. Well, I, I have to say we, we've all been very, very impressed with how the start has gone and we, we were especially impressed oh, seeing you. Calvin do some commentary as well um, <laughs> which we, we hope to keep seeing um, but Dom thank you so so much I as I said before I had the glorious rare opportunity to just sit back and listen to that rather than talk myself and I, I thought that was really really interesting so thank okay. you just so much for giving us your time quickly on the dates Joe uh, um, Dom, next one starts next week. The next one starts next week. Yes, starts on the. I should, I should have. If I was being really professional, I'd have had this up in front of me, wouldn't I? Um, so <laughs> I bring it up right now. There it is. April fifth. Uh, yeah, April fifth to April the eleventh is the next one, um, and then which, which is uh, the week three up in Loughborough. Uh, then we go week of April twenty sixth again in Loughborough. Um, then there's a break and we're back up and running post the grass court season or just sort of straight after Wimbledon, basically week straight after Wimbledon. Um, and then find another number of events across the summer and autumn, and then final week, week of December the 6th, hopefully and live B- from a BT marquee Sport venue Extra. near you all on BT B- Sport, Monday to Friday, BT Sport Extra. And then the weekends you can catch it on, on either BT Sport Extra or BT Sport three linear channels. Um, I encourage the tennis world to subscribe. <laughs> thank you very much Dom thank you so All much right, guys. for time to thanks a lot cheers Dom yeah, anytime I'd love to speak again cheers bye bye no cheers Dom Dom Hayes there of um, River Media he's running the UK Pro League which as he mentioned there comes back on Easter Monday you can catch our very own Calvin Betton giving his expert opinion and occasional rant as well um, so well, they kept what... you on Calvin 
Sorry? <laughs> they kept you on. They kept well, you I on. I, I, I thought I, it was just know. a one-weekend thing. No, I don't. we don't know yet. I'm, hopefully I'll be back. I'm hoping so. We've never officially kept so. him on here, George. He just doesn't get <laughs> He just comes, doesn't he, every week? Yeah. You can't get rid of him. Not a bad smell. Um, yeah, thank you very much, John, uh, once again for coming on. Um, do give everything a, a follow. And, and yeah, and, and yeah, just for, for anyone who's listening on that, James, what I'll say is quickly is what Dom made a point on there is that the, the top level of these guys who are, who are playing in it is is just as good as the top level of the guys you'll see in the first round in Miami, that kind of thing. The only slight difference is, you know, their bottom level and their concentration goes a bit. But if you're looking to see some competitive, good ball striking, high level tennis, and you you can't get and that well Miami won't be on by by the time this one starts. That's definitely what you want to be watching. A fine plug, if ever I've heard one. Yes. Um, let's move on to Andy Murray uh, because realistically it's been a whole half hour and we haven't spoken about him, so I feel like we're missing out. Um, talking about his latest withdrawal, he pulled out pretty last minute from Miami. He was due to take on um, George Lloyd Muirhead Harris, the his full name. Uh, in the first round of Miami, um, and he pulled out, citing a groin issue, which had occurred, well, I don't know if it occurred in an unusual way, but he basically woke up on the Saturday morning in the early hours, and he had a groin pain, hobbled to the toilet, didn't train for four days, and then said, this hasn't gone away, um, I'm I'm going to pull out. Um, there's a lot of words there with some potential entendre, and I'm appreciative that I'm talking about groins and pulling out and things, and I'm just not going to approach it. Because it's far too dangerous for a man of my um, intellect. Uh, the point is, this was a different type of thing, George. This wasn't the kind of, you know, Andy Murray, who's previously pulled out of events, saying, I could still win Wimbledon, I'm still this, I'm still that. There was some very poignant quotes where he was saying, I don't know if I can be bothered to do 10 or 12 weeks rehab again, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, it was a real shift in mood. Um, I mean, look, it... it it must be hugely frustrating, mustn't it, for him? I mean, if you think about all the reasons he's had to pull out this year, coronavirus to get you out of the Australian Open, a child, okay, that's obviously good news, but it is mildly annoying in terms of tennis terms, in terms of having to get off, you know, wanting to get back on court. Um, and then just to not even suffer the injury on court, just to kind of wake up and suddenly be like, oh, bugger my groin's gone that, that's just so annoying um you know I, I think it's obviously worth putting the quotes in context of it was pretty soon after it happened he was you know clearly still quite annoyed I'm sure you know a few days later if he's been told yeah it's going to be another four weeks rehab or whatever he would still be up for it but it, it but it was certainly a first sign of mm. him really really getting frustrated about his lack of luck and I suppose the context, boring yeah, process. You're absolutely right to stress context there. That the context is that he said, I think this is a nothing injury. You know, if, if this tournament was three days later, I might be able to play. Yeah. You know, and he had done the tests with a physio where there was no reduction in strength on the muscle, which I believe is usually an indicator that you've done some damage. You know, it was something different from that. So he was saying that he thinks it's nothing, but if it were something bad, then he'd be pretty unimpressed and, you know, didn't, necessarily have the heart I think if he tore a hamstring tomorrow he would retire that's what I took away from it if he you know did a bad injury that would require proper rehab as he says three months out of you know really te- anyone who's ever done muscular rehab knows it's really boring work 
you know, lying on the floor, rolling your leg out for days on end, what feels like. So I kind of sympathise with him there, yes, George. Yeah, and, you know, that that was kind of what he said as well. It was like, I, I actually just want to test myself against the best guys now. I'm, I'm fed up of training. I'm fed up of not being at these big events. You know, he's not played a Masters since August last year. And, okay, mm. there's probably only been one or two since <laughs> yeah, then. But, but, <laughs> um, but, you know, he, he's played first round of the French Open, first two rounds of the US Open, had to miss the Australian Open, finally felt, you know, this whole period, as we've said um, weeks after weeks on this podcast, this is the first period he's really felt, I've had a good block of training, good set of matches. I want to now test myself at the highest level. And then for this kind of, hopefully super minor setback and irritating setback to just happen, I, I think really is quite frustrating for him. I'm, I'm frustrated for him, so I understand mm. his own frustration. Calvin, well, I, I don't know how much of it you read, but how, what did you take away from it? it? It did seem like a shift in, in approach, or is that reading too much into it? I, I think it could be reading a bit too much into it. I think, but then I think all players get this way, both with injuries and after a particularly bad loss, in that there's the short term, sort of everything's down. It's a bit depressing, that kind of thing. But I think sort of, you know, six hours later, they have a think about it. And, th- you know, even when they lose matches, it's like, or they're away at tournaments, like I'm booking a flight home, this is crap. And then six hours later, they remember that they're a tennis player and these are the things that come with it. And the big question they always ask is, what else am I going to do? And I think that's still the thing, what what sort of hovers over Andy Murray. He's only, he's what, is he 33, 32 or 33? He turns 33 this year, I think. Yeah, yeah and, and so it's then like, what is he going to do? For I mean, he's, he's got plenty of kids, to be fair. But, um, <laughs> that's probably why he wants to carry on playing, I think. But, um, um, I've often said it. Yeah. But I think that will always hit him. And even like, I understand what you're saying. I don't disagree that if he, put, if he tore a hamstring, you'd retire. I think that would be his first inclination. But I would then say two days later, he then mm. start thinking, well, torn hamstrings only 12 weeks. I could be yeah. back in 12 weeks. And, and I, I think that he'll, he'll probably go on for that. I think it's more likely to be, it's more likely to be a major serious injury or the injury that he's got that doesn't get any, any better. But that seems to have improved quite a bit. That doesn't seem to be bothering him so much. Or no. if he just keeps losing first rounds. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it'll be sort of short-term injuries. And I'd say short-term being anything up to three months that will make him retire. My, my concern really is that these injuries that he keeps getting, and, and this sounds really basic, and you know, the hip is something that's joined to the rest of your body. And it, it's very integral and it can create injuries all over the place. But, you know, he had that pelvic injury. He's got this groin injury now. They all feel quite connected yeah. to this hip problem. And, you know, he is doing something no one else has ever really done. You know, it's like Tiger Woods and his fused vertebrae in his back. No one has ever come back from that surgery and played professional golf. No one's ever really played professional singles tennis with this hip. No, I th- I also think on top of that as well though. There's when when professional sportsmen have major sort of medium to major injuries in coming back from that. Normally, when they come back, they pick up other injuries as well because they've been rehabbing this particular area of the body, and there's there's weakness gone in other parts. I always remember in football, if you remember, when Michael Owen was having a real yeah. nightmare with with hamstrings. And I spoke to the physio who who was dealing with him, and he said because they because it, it was all right for the 
for the media, they'd always said it was hamstrings, but it, they weren't necessarily hamstring injuries. There were there were little other muscles around the hamstring that weren't adapting to, to him doing all the work on his hamstring, if you know what mm. I mean. So that had almost yeah. become too strong. But they just said it was just hamstrings. And so I think there's there's probably, a, it could be that there's an issue with that, that because he spent so much time rehabbing his hip, that the the rest of his body hasn't quite caught up. Or, like you say, it could be that they're all connected. I, I, mm. I don't know. Mm. It's certainly frustrating. And, and as you get older, you know, these things, just, just every day, it's just a little longer to recover a little more difficult to to move around with them but yeah we wish him well as always you know we never want to see any player and you know i i saw a picture today of stan Vavrinka and fan martin del potro both with their legs up because they both had surgery in the last week or so and obviously both guys with tremendous tennis legacies and both guys we want to see back on court just one yeah. more time uh, eventually yeah. players get to a point where there isn't a just one more time and very few of them get to retire on their own terms. So, you know, we hope that Andy has the opportunity to do that. But it's it's not it's not a right. It's a privilege to retire on your own terms. It's not a right to do it. Yeah. Um, so best of luck to Andy. Uh, speaking of luck, I just wanted to briefly mention Martin Fuchsovitz, who appears to have no luck because he has, for four consecutive tournaments, drawn the best guy at a non-Masters 1000 tournament in the world, which is Andre Rublev. And now he's drawn him in Miami and just lost in the last couple of hours to him in straight sets. But I really don't know. I mean, Martin Fuksovic must have just annoyed someone at the ATP and they're just like, right, you can have Andre every week. No chance. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he posted the other week to be like, I really hope I never see you again this season. And he's got him he's, again. He's on the court. <laughs> yeah, on court, yeah. It was, was in Dubai as Rublev was walking off. He was like, I really hope I don't see you again this year. <laughs> and he drew him immediately. Well, uh, I don't know if you saw them. I don't know if you saw the end of the match today, but they were both cracking up on the way to the net when when, <laughs> when they were shaking. There was well, they showed they showed Rublev was he as soon as he won the match point, he looked across at Fuksovic and he just cracked up laughing. So I'm hoping that I'm, I'm hoping that Fuksovic was otherwise yeah, it's not, pretty let, poor let's form. It wasn't laughing. Yeah. 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 Well, best of luck, Martin Fuksovic. Maybe maybe take a few weeks off, or or I'll tell you what, he needs to work out Rublev's schedule and yeah. then just not play those tournaments. Because he needs some sort of detox from Andre Rublevitis. Yeah. Uh, another man who needs probably a little bit of uh, rest and uh, rehabilitation might well be Jack Draper, um, whose tour debut we were very excited for. He's, you know, being billed as the next big thing in British tennis. Uh, he made a junior Wimbledon final. George and I watched, and he unfortunately lost. Um, and we were really excited for him to make his ATP tour debut. And we were really concerned when we saw him struggle with the heat. I mean, I think I mentioned it on the group at 3-2 at changeover. He was sitting in the chair, breathing hard, absolutely soaked through his shirt. He didn't, I'm surprised he didn't change his shirt, but maybe he only had four with him and thought he couldn't get through the whole match if he changed it after five games. And he was treated by the trainers for what the umpire initially said was a back problem, but, you know, they came out and checked his blood pressure and his temperature. So it clearly wasn't that. It was for the heat um, it was 30-odd degrees. It was 60-odd percent humidity, which I think is the real troubling thing in Miami. And then at set point uh, at 5-6, he, he went to catch a ball. And, 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 well, depending on your point of view, he collapsed, he fainted, or he just fell over. But either way, um, he pretty promptly retired uh, and was seen to by doctors. I mean, the good thing was he sat up quite quickly. Uh, and, you know, we understand that it wasn't too serious. But, 
I mean, Calvin, you know Jack very well. Um, he's obviously a player with a tremendous amount of talent, but maybe something still to give on the physical side. Yeah, I think he's not the first player that struggled with the heat sort of situation and, and fatigue, that kind of thing. Djokovic had a major problem with it for a couple of years as well. Um, and and Jack's, you know, there's been a couple of incidents before where he struggled in the heat, but I don't, I'd find it hard to believe it's anything to do with him not being fit enough. Just people at that age, lads at that age, they just develop at different ages. And mm. he's grown a lot. He's grown a huge amount in the last couple of years. Uh, he works hard. He's phenomenally competitive. So, I don't think it, I can't see it being that because he's not putting the work in. I just think, and it's tough as well. Look, you know, he's he's been over here in in England. I know he went. He, actually, he's been away. He went to South Africa, um, and then he went to Egypt. But he'll have been back in the UK for a bit. And you're going from sort of four degrees to. <laughs> it, I mean, I, I've been to the, I've been to Miami, and the the hot it that it was the first time I've been to America. And when the airport doors opened at Miami, it was <laughs> genuinely like walking into an oven. <laughs> so it, it, it's tough and God knows what it's like to play tennis there. So, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't think it's a major concern. I don't think it's a major concern for Jack. He'll, he'll, be, he'll be back. And I think he's, he plans on playing the Pro Series next week, he said. Hmm. Uh, George, not a nice thing to see, nevertheless. No, it wasn't. I mean, you know, I think you mentioned the points of view about him collapsing or not. I think there's only one person with the point of view he didn't collapse and that was him. But he's kind of quickly <laughs> defending it. Um, I, I'm not no, buying. I, I, no, I, th- I think he, I think his legs went a bit. I think that was the thing. I don't think he collapsed through faintness. I think his legs gave way a bit. I think the suggestion was that he'd fainted and his head had turned off. I don't think it was that. He fell on his front, which is like that was what gave it away for me. Like if you're running for a ball because he was running his left hand, he's running to his backhand side, and if you're running for a ball, like your natural instinct is to put your hands out in front of you and yeah. also to roll so that you land on your side. And he basically landed sort of nose first, which I think yeah. was a real giveaway. Um, but <laughs> irrespective of what he actually did, either way, he wasn't in a good way. No, he wasn't. And, you know, he he was swaying that entire game. I mean, it was unbelievable, yeah. really, that if it was a boxing match, it would have been stopped, like, yeah. four points before. Like, he would serve, mm-hmm. miss it, and sway to the service line going forward. I mean, it, you know, he, he was completely on the ropes, <laughs> like yeah. ready for the knockout. Um, but, you know, I, I thought there were general positives, actually, to take from the set as a whole, which sounds a bit weird to kind of say. But, you know, he was perfectly handling himself on the occasion. Like, the tennis yeah, itself well. was fine. Mm. Um, you know, he, I mean, he played and, 11 games on serve while, while suffering from heat exhaustion. You know. Exactly. You know, considering he was clearly dead, actually, as you mentioned, <laughs> like from five games, like he, he did pretty well. And he only lost the set because he collapsed. You know, he probably yeah. would have saved that break point otherwise. Um, yeah. So, you know, th- th- there are positives to take. I- I'm in Calvin's camp here. I'm not not too worried about him long term. I saw enough from that match to be like, this guy will handle the occasion of stepping up to tour level mentally. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that's the positive take. But yeah, I mean, I, I, he mentioned it's happened a couple of times before. He's he's exhaustion. He says he's doing all the right things um, in terms of liquids and salts at the right time. I I would suggest that perhaps that needs a little bit further look. I don't know. I mean, I, I think if you are if you are having this problem, I, I, I suspect you're not getting it quite right. Um, but maybe that's a little bit harsh. But well, I think 
what Calvin said is has a fair point, which is that you know he's nineteen and guys do develop at different sizes. He does look that he's got a very big frame. He's got a big silhouette. Um, you know, he's he's a big guy, and things like endurance fitness come much later in life. You know, marathon runners peak at 35, 36, really. And at 19, you don't have lots of that endurance fitness. Some people do, and some people have more of it. But, you know, there is, there's lots of room. For, I mean, let's not forget that at the age of 19, Andy Murray was, like, collapsing on second serve because his back had yeah. gone to pieces. So yeah, I, I'm not in panic stations. I, no, I'm not in panic stations. I, I'm just saying, you know, if, if this is something that's happened before which it clearly has, you know, I, for me, if I was trying to build a training plan around it, I'd be making sure we were going out and doing this sort of sudden stuff to make sure it's not happening again. And like really putting yourself in the hot conditions and having a, I, I don't know exactly what he's doing in the off season or whatever at this stage, but it's something that I'm not saying it definitely hundred percent can not happen regardless, but I, I think there are ways to prepare yourself for it and get used to knowing exactly how to deal with that situation. Um, but anyway, you know, it is still, as I say, I don't think we should be too overly concerned and I'm not going to drill a 19 year old for fainting on no. court or whatever, fainting or not, you know, he's, he still <laughs> did well enough for me. <laughs> I look, for, I look forward to him taking on Anton Mususevich at the, the pro league next week, because I think that will be a very good match. Um, assuming they get drawn in the same pool or will they probably get drawn apart um, and face off hopefully in the, in the semi-finals or the final because that would, you know, two of the rising stars, um, guys, both teenagers, both I think in the in just outside, maybe between 400 and 300 in the world. So, you know, two guys who've got, got plenty to give in the game. Um, speaking of British players, uh, Joe Conter is also in a world of trouble at the moment. Um, she is out of the Miami Masters. Uh, she got absolutely thumped by Petra Kvitova, one and two. Uh, it should be said she doesn't have a great record against Kvitova on hard courts. I don't think she's ever beaten or even taken a set off her. Um, so, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the worst result in the world. But uh, it wasn't good, <laughs> simply put. And when you put it in the context of her last 18 months, it's particularly bad. Um, since the quarterfinals of the 2019 US Open, She's failed to win consecutive matches at 11 of 13 tournaments. I mean, she's only won consecutive matches twice in the last year and a half. Um, I was just looking at her last 10 matches, of which she's won three of them. Um, some defeats, you can understand. Vicky Azarenka uh, in Cincinnati, um, Coco Goff, I suppose, uh, the French Open, Garbina Muguruza, uh, Rome, good players there, but also some bad losses. This could be a bit of a one. Shelby Rogers in Australia, I know she played well, but you know, Joe didn't lay a glove on her. Uh, Serana Castella at the US Open, you know, not a great result either. Um, there's a lot of bad losses on there. George, I'll come to you first, I suppose. Um, what on earth do you make of it? it? It's a really tough, tough one. I mean, Conta, if you look at her career, actually, in the last four or five years, it's almost been one year really good, one year really bad. One year really good, one year really bad. Uh, or uh, Really bad harsh, obviously. You know, it's still kind of top 50 player. There's nothing shay- to be ashamed of about that. But you know what I mean? In the context of what she's capable of. Um, now we're in a stretch where this is a year and a half of being really bad for her standards. For, for someone who is capable of taking a match to anyone on her day. Um, someone who's been up to number four. You know, she she doesn't look anywhere near that level. And 
I was kind of struck actually quite recently by an interview she did um, where she said she's only going to play for two more years and she's already like planning everything for retirement. I, I don't know about you, but um, I I feel that's almost a bit of a weird mindset to get into, um, you know, kind of <laughs> picking a spot for the end of your career two years away I, I don't know I, I mean for me I, I, if I were her I'd be thinking right I've been to Grand Slam semi-finals I'm capable of going that one step further I'm not going to stop until I physically can't do that she mm. seems kind of quite happy to let things wind down and that, that suggests to me mentally she, she, you know there are more important things and that's fine that's totally fine you know that's her prerogative but I think as soon as you start opening that door at that level and, and let's not forget the women's game is strong at the minute you know there is so much mm. depth there's no easy matches you know some of the names you're listing off there you're totally fine to lose to them I'd say only Castella of that list uh, you read out is a bad loss for Joe Conter um, or the other ones are all around like 60-40 50-50 matches mm. um, but I'm, I'm worried yeah I, I am worried but she's had this knee problem as well I don't know how motivated she is, and that's speaking from afar, not anything particularly about her. The way she went out in Australia for me, you know, she kind of threw in the towel very quickly that day. Um, and she played a week. She played and she a week played later, a week or two later. Yeah, exactly. So to me, I, I'm being a hard ass. I'm I'm not that convinced by her mentally at the minute. I would just wonder, you know, and I I don't like to to kind of uh, exacerbate the, the, the difference between ATP and WTA. But, you know, she's 29 and there is always, you know, when, when you're someone who's family-minded, the idea that some women don't want to have children later in life or they don't want to do certain things later in life. Now, we know that you can have children and come back, but it's not easy. You know, <laughs> childbirth, frankly, is uh, significantly harder uh, than any professional sporting career. And to do it and then come back and try and play professional sport is an incredible achievement. And I just wonder whether maybe that's playing on her mind as well. I don't know. Again, you're kind of speculating a bit, but I would entirely forgive her for thinking along those lines. Yeah. And, and to be fair, she has said that in terms of her future plans. So, you know, that, that is at the forefront of her mind and why she and she said she wouldn't come back after it. You know, whether that's true or not, you never know. Uh, and look, I'm not having a go at her motivation. She's within her own rights to plan however she wants. I just think it's a bit of a shame in many ways, as I'm sure many armchair pundits do say about these sort of things, that she has just been so horribly close. And I think some of the matches she's lost have not been her being beaten, but her beating herself at the biggest moment. I, I, I think we'll look back on Conta's career and, really see a, a career of missed or what ifs perhaps you know it's... i really i really remember um that semi-final wimbledon semi-final against venus and she was that i know she lost in straight sets but i think it was either at four all or um maybe it was four five and she was break point down to venus or maybe it was fifteen thirty, and venus just got all over her first serve just like walked at it and smashed it and it, it broke her. Like, she didn't go back to the baseline and do her little, you know, two-step and, and refresh. It, it, it completely crushed her spirit. And 
she was massively in that and she'd have played Muguruza in the final and I don't think she would necessarily have lost. And yeah, like you say, George, I do think she's been very close at times. You know, I don't think she was ever going to be world number one. But with the way the women's game is, there there, there could have been days when the draw opened up and, and she won a slam and, and that would have been an incredible achievement. Not to say, I think as Don was saying earlier about Tim Henman, that she hasn't <laughs> yeah. a lot in her life. But... Should've, we're always going to say shoulda, woulda, coulda. Do, do you feel the same way, Calvin? Um, I'm going to take a little, be a bit different from that. I think there's an element of her just reverting to the mean. I think that she's she's had the form of some, for about an 18-month period, maybe a bit less, for a 12-month period, she had the form of a top 10 player. But I think she's always been really a top 30 player. And I think there's just been a, re- a reverting to that over the last 12 months. Um, she just hit a great period of form, and players do that for for about twelve mm. months, I think. And then, and 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 a couple of other tournaments aside from that. But if we look, if we look at her career at the end of it overall, it will suggest that she was somebody who overall was a top that was a thirty to thirty five, somewhere between twenty five and thirty five in the world player. And I think that's what we're seeing. I, th- I think, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying I necessarily thought Conta's the world's greatest player, but I think if you look at the position, I mean, the the one that stands out for me is always that French Open. I mean, that losing to Vondras over in that semi-final, the manner yeah. of the loss, you yeah. know, but you don't you don't need to be a top ten player to win that match. And no. and frankly, if you get through to that final, then you know against Ash Barty, who don't be wrong, has been a brilliant player, but that's say she's not won a Grand Slam. Clay is not her best surface. That that's a still a fifty-fifty matchup to me. On the day, I, th- I think in terms of that though, that she's her strength, her biggest strength is also her greatest weakness is that this sort of intense intenseness, <laughs> for, for want of a better <laughs> word, that she has <laughs> mentally, where everything is, is so sort of tightly strung and so intense mentally that that's what pulls her through a lot of the matches. But then I know that I read a coaching book once where, where he spoke about dislocated expectations and when something doesn't happen that she doesn't that she doesn't expect it, it all just unravels so quickly and I think there's definitely an element of that with 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 Conta it, it makes sense and, and you're right you know it's easy to forget that Conta was not nowhere but you know until her mid to late 20s she, she wasn't a top 20 player and wasn't seen at the grand yeah. stance it kind of I mean late developer gets thrown around a lot you, Calvin, I know what you're saying. Not necessarily a late developer, more just someone who had a good spike. Yeah, yeah. And, and in, in many ways, I was just going to say, on that point, I mean, that almost surprises me more she wants to stop early. Do you know what I mean? Like, the fact, it's not like she's been a top 50 player for 10 years, sitting around. She has made a lot of money, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that. But it's, it's been a relatively short, what, four-year spike, this, for her? Um, I, I, you know, I think as well, if if we sort of look at so something I was thinking a couple of weeks about with Contra is that if we compare her to a similar player in the male game, and what one I'd use would be a Berrettini, sort of at the similar age and similar levels that they've they've sort of had similar careers where out of nowhere they both went and made top ten. I think Berrettini had one semi final maybe. Um, mm. Contra's had a couple, but we won't look back in five years and think. Tell you what, Berrettini should have done more with his career. It'll be more like I'll tell you what Berrettini had a good 18 months didn't he and, but then I wonder, and I, 
I wonder if you ask an Italian if they might think differently. You know, I don't there think is so. definitely <laughs> 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 not, not, not Italians who've seen him hit backhands. I don't think. And, <laughs> and, now, and now they've got Yannick Sinner to look for and Massetti to look forward to. I, I don't think they'll um, see Berrettini as that. It's an absolute fact. It, it, he is a beautiful man, though, isn't he, Berrettini? If nothing else, I mean, a and he's man, only twenty-four. Uh, don't say twenty-four as well. We know James, James <laughs> gets really excited. <laughs> but I've heard as well, though, that Berrettini. I was told by a one of the female players that apparently he's not when you get up close to him. Um, really, and, it, and and the, apparently the cap, the how he wears the cap, makes him look better looking than he actually is without the cap. He's got That's a pretty good. Washboard abs, if nothing else. Right. I don't think, yeah, don't think you have to see that rig. from afar. Can, can, can confirm from Google. <laughs> good rig. Teeny. You may not. Win. Well, move, moving on. <laughs> Let, let's move on. Um, George, you wanted to talk and briefly, and I'm going to say briefly, about Vasek Pospisil. Uh, he had an on-court outburst that, to me, seemed a lot like an effort to get something into the public without actually meaning to get it into the public eye. Um, he he somehow... Well, you, well, what I mean You're saying this that, is staged. That's exciting. No, That's, I've no, not really I'm not heard saying that it's theory. staged. No, I'm not saying it's staged. I'm saying I like that, that theory, quite... James. I like that. <laughs> can, I just quite... butt in the... can I just butt in there quickly, just because I have a quick story about this, that one of the commentators... Had... I guess people in this group will know it is because it, it might be one of my least favourite commentators. Was talking about <laughs> was talking about it the day after, and that person said they were talking about. It and they went, I, I got a little bit of a hint that there may have been something off court that was bothering him. And I was like, yeah, I wonder what that hint would be. <laughs> and I thought, how are you? Have you not listened to what he said? It's just like a little bit of a hint. <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, well, so what my point is, because uh, what what happened, you know, to, to kind of outline it, if anyone hasn't seen it, is Vazic Pospisil was, and it's important to note that he was a set down at the time, um, but he, decide, he, he had a bit of a rant at the umpire, as players who are a set down tend to do. And in it, he started referencing um, Gadenzi, the, the ATP Andrea Gadenzi, the ATP president, I think I'm right in saying, um, and how much of a fucking asshole he is, uh, and it just completely lost it. Um, now, why would you do that to the umpire, who really has very little to do with the ATP president, if you didn't know that everything on court is very well microphoned and televised, and that you were sort of trying to make a point without having to call a press conference and look like a bit of an idiot? George, argue with me. Well, I'm not going to argue with you on that point. I mean, I totally agree. I mean, he came across as an absolute twit, basically. Um, you know, I, I won't rush in and say I'm Pospisil's biggest fan in general. Um, just just to put that out there as a whole. But I would say there is an interesting, or the most interesting part of this is the getting close to universal concern over Gaudenzi's leadership at the minute. Right. Um, I think if you compare it to the Commode era, um, there was a big body of player support for Chris Commode. Um, yeah. They they liked him a lot. And, you know, there was a feeling this faction who was on the player council 
which has admittedly grown a lot bigger since with the PTPA. But there was a feeling that it was a, a small minority were ousting Commode. And Gaudenzi was put in as a, I suppose, a popular choice, a former player, someone they thought would do more for them. And it's not quite materialised. And what's not happened on top of that is that Gaudenzi's not really got the massive support of the players who were on side with Commode. So as the PTPA has grown, everyone else is a which bit is no, kind which of is like... No Come which is Novak Djokovic's little faction, um, which is not so little anymore, I suppose. It's getting quite big. Um, you know, I, I don't think Gaudenzi's got much change in the bank, really, um, from a lot of people. And that that's organisationally as well as players. I, I don't think anyone's been that impressed with his handling of the pandemic. I don't think there's... He's been very quiet. The lack of leadership's the kind of perception that I'm told about, that people feel. Um, so it's, it's it's an interesting time because things haven't changed since this changing of the CEO. Obviously, Novak has gone on permanently about wanting a new structure. <clears throat> Obviously, a lot of these problems that were there in Camo's time have been exacerbated by this pandemic that's, you know, <laughs> seen the prize money gone from, oh, crap, you know, we want more, but we've already got a pretty decent amount to oh crap <laughs> you know we've we're now getting paid 60 percent what we were last year and you know john isn't to be fair his argument and some of their arguments is well let us see the balance sheets and see how much is coming out and you know i, I don't think it would help them to see the balance sheets really because I'm, I'm sure they just want whatever they think is a reasonable amount without having the knowledge of what is reasonable but um you know, there is a lack of transparency and it doesn't sound like Gaudenzi's played a blinder with this Pospisil stuff, to be honest, because if you're going for a player in front of these meetings and belittling him and saying you're stupid and ignorant and whatever, which, you know, I'm not going to say is 100% not true, um, but, you know, is it, it does create a problem and it does create a us versus them. And I, I think Gaudenzi's in danger of letting this slip too far away. I would say we're now at the most toxic point I can remember um, between players and ATP, which it seems remarkable to say, given, you know, they literally forced out a president about <laughs> 12 months okay. ago. Can I, can I ask you a slightly facetious question? Why should we care? Why should tennis fans care about this what feels like political infighting? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I always think, I mean, I, I like politics generally, so I always find it quite sexy, this kind of like row for power and stuff. And, what and particularly, you find sexy? What a list that is. I know, I know. That is a really odd list that we definitely don't want to go <laughs> imagine, into. In imagine, the, imagine the arousal that George would get if Berrettini got involved in this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the face debate. of politics. <laughs> But, but I think in terms of a general, from a very media perspective, I, I've always found it interesting in terms of you've got Novak on one side and Roger and Rafa on the other side. I, I think, you know, the idea, for example, if you had Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo involved at the board level at FIFA, you know, it, it's a it's a weird setup, isn't it? Having the players kind of running the sport. Like, that that's essentially what tennis is trying to do with this kind of symbiotic relationship. And it, you know, 
it does have its problems. And I, actually, a lot of the stuff, and I've said this since I've started covering all this political infighting, you know, I, um, I understand why they'd want a, a union to a degree. And I understand why <clears throat> there are a lot of issues. You know, we've spoken about it on this podcast a lot. You know, the lower ranked players are getting a very raw deal compared to other sports. My question has always been, are the people leading this charge actually coming in with it with their those interests at heart, really? You know, is that really what's going on? When you're talking about taking Wimbledon to Abu Dhabi or whatever, however tongue-in-cheek, that, that's actually kind of missing the point of how tennis needs to structurally change. And I, I'm not convinced that in the middle of a pandemic is the right time to be pulling everything apart further. Um, but that, that might just be me. And I, I do have some sympathies with both sides, but I, I am a little bit more concerned. Um, there's been talks of strikes potentially happening in Miami. That was the rumour that people were trying to get those together and couldn't get the numbers. Some were saying that might roll on towards Monte Carlo in the clay court season. And it'll be interesting to see now Pospisil's had this very public row with Gaudenzi, and I, I mean public in terms of obviously taking it on court, but also in terms of him being shouted at in front of the wider player, Bozzi. It sounds like Gaudenzi really lost it, or he and his team did. Um, you know, that support might grow, and it's already quite big. Um, so it's going to be interesting, you know. It's interesting if nothing else. I find it interesting, but maybe I'm in a minority here. Well, that's all right. That's why I ask you about it at the end of the pod when everyone's already queued up. <laughs> um, thanks very much for, for that update, though. Um, we haven't had an opportunity to talk about um, Felix Algrelia-Seam, um, which has been uh, Calvin's particular red flag this week. Um, but if you head over to his, his Twitter, at CalBeton, you'll find some choice opinions and some selection arguments. We'll maybe talk about it a little bit later. Maybe we'll even get someone from the Tennis Canada podcast on to, to argue with Calvin live. I think that would be well, the most fun way. Well, I went on their podcast last week and they've they've always said they'd love to come on ours. So I, I think that really could be quite Does that offer stand? Game on, Game on. <laughs> I think, funnily enough, actually, on their podcast, I, obviously, I know we were kind of at the end here, but I, I kind of, I went on and probably said in more of a tactile fashion kind of what Calvin you was saying. I was a little bit... You mean tactile? I don't mean tactile. Tactful, sorry. It's been a long day. Sorry, you meant you put me. a hand on a knee and said, oh, I, do, I don't actually like Felix Algarelli. That, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I put my hand on their virtual knees in Canada reaching <laughs> through Zoom like Mr. Tickle. Um, okay. No. Tickle. That got a bit weird. Tickle. <laughs> that, that was a good niche uh, politicsy joke. Um, but... It, yeah, I kind of said the same thing in terms of I, I had been a little bit disappointed with how they'd gone. I, I didn't quite say it as Calvin as, you know, neither of them have improved for <laughs> four years or whatever, but they kind of accepted that. So I, I think they'd be up for a hearty debate on it. I can, I can put the offer I, out I, and we can. I look, I look forward to moderating a robust debate um, on Felix Algarelia. Seem It's what I've always dreamed of. Um, and on that, and, you know, and Shapovalov as well. Calvin started dragging him in. I saw earlier as yeah, well. Just to yeah, yeah. really fair, get that cat went, among the pigeons. Since since I brought my Fire Stick home, and I mean my Amazon Fire Stick, um, my my mum has <laughs> my mum has had live tennis on her telly for the first time in quite a long time. So she's kind of really re-engaged with the tennis scene. And Denis Shapovalov has long hair and a backwards hat. And unfortunately, that is never going to play well with the over-60s. 
Um, so, yeah, we're not a pro Shapovalov household in that sense. He's also left-handed, which I think is cheating. Um, you shouldn't be allowed to play left-handed. Um, but that's that's neither here nor there, because most of the good British players are left-handed now. So I'm going to struggle with that one. Um, we must leave it there, because we've already gone on too long. Thanks very much to Dom Hayes for coming on, talking to us about UK Pro League. Thanks to George. Thank you to Calvin. Um, if you don't Good already, luck. follow us on Twitter. Um, it's at Love Tennis Pod. Um, give us a follow. You'll get all the latest um, fantasy games that we run. Uh, you'll also know exactly when the podcast comes out if you don't catch it live. Remember, you can listen live on a Monday night. We're going to be from 8 o'clock next week, 8 p.m. UK time um, on Locker Room app. You can listen live. You can ask questions. You can even take part um, and speak on the pod as Dom did tonight. Um, please do leave us a rating wherever you're listening as well. That's important. I know I ask a lot of you, but we did just give you an hour and 10 minutes of borderline entertainment. Um, back next week for more. Cheers, lads. Cheers, guys. <laughs>